Good morning, folks. It's good to be here preaching this morning. Not my favorite circumstance, but I do relish the opportunity to preach whenever I get it. So we spent the last three weeks in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John, and the entire chapter actually makes up a discrete unit. You've got to kind of look at the whole thing to really make sense of what's happening at the end and what Jesus is saying. So if you would bear with me, I am going to recap, we're going to revisit some of the things that, that Lucas has taught over the last three weeks. So uh, again, bear with me. But before we do that, can we, uh, can we unite our hearts in prayer? Let's, let's pray together. Father, just um, grateful for this opportunity to, to preach your word. God, would you, um, would you allow your word to go forth and not return to you void this morning? Work in the hearts and minds um, of all those who are sitting here. Holy Spirit, even now, um, begin to stir so that we can understand, so we can, we can know you and your son, Jesus Christ. God, we lift up uh, Lucas and Amy and Kaya to you, their, their whole extended family in the States, really, Lord, as they, um, as they navigate uh, these waters once again. Um, Father, this reminds us that we live in a world that is broken, and we as your followers are not spared from that brokenness and from that pain. So, Lord, would you, would you comfort them, and would you allow us to come behind them and beside them um, as a family of faith to, to do that as well? We pray these things in your name. Amen. So chapter 5 marks a transition in Jesus' ministry um, from a private sphere to a public sphere. And there are these escalating conflicts that you will see begin to foment with the religious authorities. He is just going to come against the religious authorities more and more as he makes his way towards the cross. But right from the start, as he begins this public ministry, Jesus signals to his disciples and he signals to everyone around him, those who are present where he is, that his kingdom will turn the world upside down. That what he is about to do in the world is not what they expect. He is going to upend the whole thing, the powers, the structures, all of it is going to get turned upside down. You see, he is coming into Jerusalem during a feast time. We don't know which feast it was, but he and, his, he and his disciples travel into Jerusalem. And what do they do? Jesus doesn't go to Queen's Park. He doesn't go to Bay Street. What he does is he goes to the food bank and he goes to the, help, the homeless shelter. That is where he goes. He takes his disciples to show them that their first calling will be to the broken and to the rejected, that they will be to the poor and the powerless, to the marginalized, to the outcasts of society, to the pariahs. He is making a point to say, I have come for everyone, but I have come for the least of these. You can even picture Jesus as he enters into this space. He goes to um, the sheep gate and the pool by Bethesda where he is about to meet this crippled man. But as he comes into that space with his disciples in tow, you can almost see him moving from person to person. As he casts his glance, he is touching them with compassion. He is reaching out and extending himself. 
He is saying a word of encouragement. And as he does that, these people are amazed. Who is this man who is willing to touch us, to break that barrier? We are untouchable, and yet this man touches us. And so he's, work, he's, he's working his way through the crowd, and he comes to this crippled man. This crippled man who has been here for 38 years, sitting beside this pool because he's looking for healing. And Jesus asks him this question. He says, do you want to be healed? And now, this crippled man probably has never heard this question before. No one has ever asked him if he wants to be healed. And so he doesn't even know how to respond to that. The only thing he knows how to say is what his present condition is. And he says, I have no one. I have no one to bring me into the waters when it's stirred up. I have no one, no family, no friends. There is no one in the world who cares for me. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning, and you may have said this to yourself. You may have said to yourself, I have no one. But can I tell you, folks, that's not true. That is absolutely not true. You have someone. His name is Jesus. Just as this crippled man is asked this question and responds, I have no one, Jesus responds with love to him. His heart is filled with compassion for this man, and his love pours forth, and he heals him. He heals him. And you might think, why this man? Of all of the people that are in this place who are waiting to be healed, all of these invalids, why is Jesus healing this man and not the other? You might ask that question in your own life. I have a friend who about three weeks ago uh, emailed me, texted me, telling me about a situation in his family. His, his younger or his older cousin in his 30s um, took a fall in his own home and ruptured his spleen. And this 30-odd-year-old cousin was admitted to the hospital, and the doctors couldn't staunch the bleeding, and they couldn't find a way to help him. And so after three weeks in hospital, up and down, I got a text yesterday as I was preparing to preach today um, that, his, that his cousin had passed. Did we not pray for this, this man? Were there not... Were God's people not on their knees? Why did God not heal him? That might be a question you ask yourself or have asked yourself in your own life. And the answer I see from this text is this, that Jesus says, I do what the Father is doing. I do what the Father is doing. What he does, I do. And so what that tells me is that even Jesus does God's work in God's time according to God's economy. Guys, I don't have the answer to why does God heal some and not others. But what I do know is that the promise of complete healing is coming because God is making all things new. And by the blood of Christ, we have healing. Maybe not in this world, but we will when he gives us new bodies when we enter into the new heaven and the new earth.
So this is a very public miracle now that Jesus performs. He's healing this man, and people have gathered around to see what he's doing. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And so this man does it. But you can imagine that he's been sitting there for 38 years. You can imagine what has happened to his body physically, right? His muscles have atrophied. He's got no muscle tone. And for him to be able to physically stand up of his own power, those things need to be regenerated, right? Everything, lungs, all of it. To be able to stand up and walk, we take for granted what it actually takes for our bodies to be able to do that. So this man, that would be happening. And as it's happening, the people around him are losing their minds. How is this man who we have seen here for 38 years in the same spot, how is it possible that he is now up and walking? And so in that commotion, Jesus kind of fades away. He kind of slips into the crowd. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. And this man in that moment, he's probably a little, you know, out of his mind too. This is what is actually happening here. And he, he, all he knows is that here's a man who said, pick up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden, he's able to stand up. And so he says, naturally, I'm just going to pick up my mat and walk. And so he takes up his mat and he leaves this place, this pool in Bethesda. And as he goes about his day, I don't, he might not even know where he's heading. He just knows that he can walk now, so he's going to go wherever his feet may take him. And they take him past the Jews, okay, the Sadducees, the keepers of the law. And according to their laws, it is illegal to move on the Sabbath, which is the day that it is, and Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, it is illegal to move an object from one place to another because it's considered work and Jews don't work on the Sabbath. So you don't do that. You don't move an object from one place to another. And so they take him and they say, do you know what you're doing? And he says, no, I don't. This guy healed me and he told me to take my mat and walk. And so that's what I'm doing. And here we encounter the very heart of the gospel. We're about to enter into the heart of the gospel, the core, the crux, the cause, the central character of the gospel, all encapsulated in this one question that the Pharisees or the Sadducees asked this man. And they ask him, who is this man? Who is this fellow that has told you, who has healed you on the Sabbath and told you to pick up your mat and walk? They think they're just asking for some random guy's name. That's what they think they're asking for. What they don't know is the answer to this question holds the key to eternal life. The Jews don't care that this man's been healed. They don't care. They've never been down to the sheep gate, to the Bethesda pool, to see these people who are in need. They've never been down there. All they want is to pin their target on someone. They need to harpoon. Who are they going to harpoon? Who are they going to string up for this transgression of their law? And so we have these twin questions. Jesus asking this man, do you want to be healed? And the Sadducees asking the man who was healed, who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And these twin questions set up the stage for the ultimate showdown. Because when Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? In his act 
of healing this man. He shows the people there. He shows the very world who it is that he is. Healer. Son of God. Who does what his father does. And when the Jews ask, who is this man? And Jesus responds to their accusations and to their persecution. That response flies in the face of everything that they think they know, everything that they believe. Jesus simply answers them. Listen to this. He says, my father is working until now. And I am working. That my before the father makes all of the difference because he is saying he's my father. I am putting myself on equal plane with him. He works on the Sabbath, therefore I work on the Sabbath. We're going to review the scripture that we've gone through. So it's, it's a lot of scripture. So we're going to read that together. But whenever you read scripture on a Sunday, it's a guaranteed win, right? You can't go wrong with reading scripture. So let's do that together. This is uh, John chapter 5, verses 18 to 30. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is here, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, Lucas explained really clearly how Jesus was equating himself with God, not in rank or in eminence, but in personhood and activity. And this is why the, the Jews want to string him up. And so they come at him, and he begins his keynote address in verse 19 as he responds to these charges that they've laid against him. He makes his claim against his opponent um, like this. 
He says to them, guys, this, this isn't about me. I'm just doing what I see my father doing. I'm just doing what he's told me to do. Because my relationship with him is built on imitation and obedience as any good Jewish son does with his father. I'm not making myself anything with regards to God. I am not making myself equal to him. Who and what I am is by the will of the Father. I'm not taking anything. I'm just receiving what my Father gives me. And he's giving me the authority to judge. He is giving me the same honor that is due him. He is giving me the power to give life. So he says that. And then he begins to support it with the testimony of witnesses. Let's look again at John chapter 5. Verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is trying to set the stage to say, I have witnesses that will corroborate or, or speak against your claim. Do you, um, how many, any online shoppers here? Who's bookmarked Amazon.ca in their home? Anybody? I, I have. I shop on Amazon.ca a lot. Prime member, next day delivery. How much better can it get, right? Hotels, you guys book hotels online, Airbnbs. What's the first thing you do after you look at the price? Where do you go? The reviews, right? You go and look at the reviews because you want to know what people have said. You want to know you're not going to get a raw deal, right? You want to go there and be like, oh, there was barf on the ceiling? Yeah, I'm not going to go to that Airbnb, right? That's, that's not a good sign. You know what's, what's funny with me? Sometimes when, I have a, when, I, when a vendor sells me something, He'll actually contact me 
and say, can you please give me a good review? And I'm like, I'm not going to give you a good review if you don't deserve it, right? You can't ask me to give you a good review. I'll give you the review that you deserve, right? This isn't what Jesus is doing, okay? He's not like, he's not going to the wedding guest at Cana. He's not, you know, on the phone with Nicodemus. He's not like texting um, the Samaritan woman and say, hey, pat my likes. That's not what Jesus is doing, all right? Because what is happening with these, the Jews, they ha- it's a legal case. It's a legal case. And Jesus is responding in kind. The Jews have accused Jesus of blasphemy. And this is a capital offense. And the biblical rule that, the biblical rule that applies here requires that at least two witnesses validate the testimony in a capital case. And so he's just saying, he's like, I know what you're doing here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure you hear what I have to say in the words that you need to hear it in. He says, I know my own testimony is not going to hold up in court, but there is someone whose testimony you ought to listen to. And when he says someone, the Jews are all thinking, ah, we saw this coming. We know who he's going to talk about. He's going to mention John the Baptist. That's his man. But even if it's John the Baptist, that's only one witness, so he's still stuck in a quandary, right? So Jesus tells them what they want to hear. He gives them what they want. He says, you've heard that John, you've heard what John has said about me. And guess what? It's true. But I've got an even greater testimony than any man can give. And he's about to lay it on them, right? But before he does, he says this beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And if you caught it when we were reading it, congratulations. But this is what he says. He says, I say these things so that you might be saved. I say these things so that you might be saved. These are Jesus' opponents. These are the guys who want to string him up. String him up. They're persecuting him. And Jesus is face to face with them, and he says to them, I'm going to lay out my case, and you're going to see that it's true. You may not believe that it's true, but I'm going to lay it out for you. But more importantly than that, it's not to prove myself right or you wrong. It's so that you will be saved. There is no irony in this statement. There is no sarcasm. There's no passive aggressiveness. It is just the truth. Jesus is imploring them to listen to John for their own sakes. So even in the midst of the accusations, even in the midst of the antagonism he feels from them, Jesus' heart is full of love and compassion and is beating strongly for these Jews. His response, brothers and sisters, his response to the weak And his response to the strong is the same. It is love. His response to everyone he meets is love. I wish I could say that for myself. I wish that I could say that my response to everyone is like that of Jesus. But by his grace, he's working in me. He's sanctifying me. He's refining me. Maybe not on this side of heaven, but getting closer. When you deal with the people around you, regardless of who they are, is your response the same? You can ask yourself that question. And here's where Jesus gets real. And he, and he, and he says to them this. I'm going to paraphrase, okay? I'm speaking in the voice of Jesus. 
He says, I told you, I told you that my father is working, and then I am working. And it is that very thing that proves that I am innocent of these accusations that you bring against me. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, and you've seen, you've seen, you've heard the miracles. The lame walk, the dying are healed, but you do not believe because you do not know God. The scripture that you cling to so dearly it hasn't made its way from your head to your hearts. You think that knowing the scriptures will save you, but it won't. Knowing the one that the scriptures point to, me, that is what will give you life. Again, Jesus lays this on the table. There is no irony. There is no sarcasm. There is no guile in him. It is just the compassionate rebuke and the heartfelt plea of Jesus, the Son of God. That is the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of the gospel. There's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to in this, in this section. We know that the Father bears witness to the Son through his work and he bears witness to the Son through the Scriptures. But folks, we bear witness to the Son by doing his work. We bear witness to Jesus. A couple of Sundays ago, Lucas, um, when he preached on the Trinity, he said, uh, he asked this question, who sees God in you? Because he reminded us that we are image bearers. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul, elsewhere in his epistles, says that we are to put on Christ. We are to clothe ourselves with Christ. And so we move from being image bearers to action tellers. We are image bearers, yes, but we also have to be telling people who Jesus is by our actions, by responding with love to everyone like Jesus. Jesus goes on to tell the Jews, you do not have the word abiding in you. I love this word, abide. It's an older word. We don't tend to use it anymore um, to the point where people don't know what it means. Okay. I googled this word just to, just to get a sense, uh, and uh, what popped up was a pop culture reference. Does any, has anybody seen The Big Lebowski here? Big Lebowski? I don't recommend it, okay? Not a good movie to watch. But, but from what I've heard on the interwebs, um, <laughs> this is why I usually don't preach when he's around, okay? <laughs> So there are these, like, it's just a really quotable movie, right? There's this, there's this one quote that says, the rug. Someone comes and steals the Big Lebowski's rug, right? And then um, he takes the rug away, and then he says, man, but that rug really brought the room together. That was a great quote. Another one is this. The Big Lebowski calls himself the dude. He refers to himself as the dude, and he says, the dude abides. And when I, when I, when I looked online... The, on, on one of the threads that I encountered, um, this guy was saying, I love this quote, but I don't know what the word abide means. Can somebody please tell me? And I'm like, dude, dictionary.com. You, you could have just typed in a dictionary. Why did you have to ask on this thread? Amazing. Anyway, 
So the word abide is this powerful word and pregnant with meaning. The word abode comes from the word abide. And if you, you know the word abode, probably more likely, uh, the word abode means like a dwelling place, a house, a residence, a home. And the word abide has that same kind of meaning, to remain, okay, to dwell, to continue, to endure, right? And so I want you to listen to this. Jesus says to these Jews, the word does not dwell in you. And if you look back at John chapter 1, verse 14, what do we see? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see what's happening here? God looks at his people and he says, I've given you my word, but it doesn't dwell in you. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make my word living flesh, put it in front of you that it could dwell with you. Like I'm at a loss for words to describe what that means to me. And I hope what that might mean to you. Now, I've never been in the home of a Muslim until I moved to, the, uh, to an Islamic country. Um, which our family did for a year and a half, um, half a year ago. But for the Muslim, the Quran is everything. You live and die by this book. It is, you know, when we say the Holy Bible, right? Muslims are like the Holy Quran. To them, it's like, you got to take care of this thing, right? And so in the home of every Muslim, you have a copy of the Quran, and it is on display in a prominent place in their home. And you're probably not going to find it close to the floor. You're going to find it close to the ceiling because they give it a place of prominence. Not only do they revere the word and, and the book, they reveal, they reveal the physical book itself. The Jews revered the scriptures and they knew its content. Yet the scripture itself had no life. Guys, this book... The, the ink on these pages, there's no life in this, the book itself. So what I want you to take away with you today, and I just, just hear me, and just really hear me. It is the Logos, it is the living word, the one to whom the scripture points that gives life. You can know the content of the Bible, but be ignorant of the heart of the gospel. You can know the contents of the Bible, but be ignorant of the heart of the gospel. You can know the Bible and not comprehend its core, that God is working to make all things new, that he is, he is bringing healing on a cosmic level to the world. You can know the Bible without recognizing its crux, that God became man, that the second person of the Trinity became flesh for you. You can know the Bible without joining in its cause. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and for you to be part of that. I worked really hard on that part. Did you guys catch that? I talked about healing. I talked about the Trinity. I talked about heaven. You know what I'm talking about. I basically recapped everything he just said. Yes. Hooray for Kevin. So we come back to this question. We come back to this question. 
Who is this man? Because friends, the answer to this question is the very heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the gospel. And every one of us living here on earth, every one of you in this room, everyone who has ever walked this earth, past, present, future, will have to answer this question personally, who is this man? Because you can know the content of the Bible, but not know its central character and not put your active trust in him in, by believing. And this is what John, the writer of this gospel, John, the beloved disciple, is what he wants you to know and to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is working to restore all of creation, and that we bear witness to this by joining him in his work. John 10.10 says, I, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it in all of its fullness. Who is this man? He is Jesus, the Son of God, my Savior, my Lord. If you've been paying attention this morning, you will have heard the echoes of the opening passage of John's gospel all throughout our passage today. I did a side-by-side -side comparison and you can see where, they, where, where it matches up. I want you to listen to this, okay? So if you're an um, aural learner, if you close your eyes and you listen better that way, I invite you to close your eyes. You don't have to. But I want you to listen to the words of John from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And this is what he says. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all would believe through him. He was not the light but he came to bear witness to the light. The true light, which was coming into the world, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The world was made through him. He was in the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen the father who is at his side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Let's pray together. Father, there are um, really no adequate words in whatever language we speak uh, to express how we feel that, that you, omnipotent, omniscient, alpha, omega, creator of heaven and earth, would become man 
so that we might have life and life in all its fullness. God, as we wrestle with this, as we continue to ask ourselves, who is this man? That the answer that you give to us will be that he is my savior, he is my Lord, and he is the one thing in which I put all of my trust. In Christ's name we pray.